0: Are listening to the Classic Sermons Podcast from PreachTheBible.org, a ministry of North Valley Baptist Church in Santa Clara, California. You will hear fervent, old fashioned revival sermons from great preachers of the past. It is our desire that you will be helped by this gospel message. Open your Bible to page number 767. Everybody in North Carolina has a Scopio reference Bible. If you don't have one, you're leaving under a great difficulty. I be about pray and ask God to get me one. KJV. No NIV, No NASV. And no R S V. Right. That's North Carolina for you. Yeah. And South Carolina. Amen. God bless you. Good to be with you all. Uh, I want you to look at a text in Isaiah 62. Now, for you that have the misfortune of no school for you, Isaiah 62, verse number 10 is my text. And I never noticed this text in the Bible until a few weeks ago. I was preaching out in, in Texas, and I heard a man refer to this text. I couldn't understand his sermon very well because I have a difficulty hearing, but I saw the text, and I said, my, that's a great text of scripture. I want to preach on that, that text of scripture, and I have several times, and I'd like to use it again here tonight. It's so timely, and I think we can apply it so very well. Now, I'm aware of the fact that the prophecy of Isaiah is basically a Jewish book. Isaiah is a Jew of the uh, people of Israel. It was he who prophesied, Behold, a virgin shall be your child. Chapter seven, fourteen. I believe that. And she delivered that child. I believe that according to Matthew chapter 1. I know the virgin birth is no difficulty in my life. I believe that Jesus was born of a virgin. There's no doubt about that. And Isaiah is the man that gave these great truths to the people of Israel, the immortal Classic, Isaiah 53, nothing like it in all the Bible. Who hath believed our report? To whom is the honor of the Lord revealed? And who shall declare his generation the three questions of Isaiah 53? And my only preach on that. you have to preach the gospel in the Old Testament style. And I'm aware of that fact, yet I'm going to lift this text out and make an application with it to the fellowship meeting here at this great church on this good night. Uh, October 8, 1991. I'm so glad that I'm privileged to be with you, and I hope I can tarry with you longer if the Lord let me live. I'm 77 years old. I can't believe that, except when I start walking. (laughs) I park where crippled people park, and somebody said, you don't have a sign on your car. I say, if they stop me, I say, watch me walk. I'll qualify. But anyway, I hope the Lord let me hang around a bit longer if I can and preach a little bit more of the good truths of God. God bless you all. You young preachers, encourage me. Uh, May God bless you. Uh, I see a number of the graduates of Tabernacle Baptist College, and uh, they're out pastoring you here tonight. I'm so proud of you. You're strengthening Some of the students from the college came up with us tonight, and that's good also to have them along. The dean of our Bible college, Brother Hughes, is here, and I appreciate he and the others that came along with us uh, to the meeting. Now, I could take the time to read, beginning from verse number one. When you go home tonight, if you're not traveling, if you're staying in a motel for tomorrow, uh, then you read this chapter in your motel room in its entirety. Beginning at verse number one, you find some precious and wonderful things set forth uh, by Isaiah. And in the second verse, he mentions Gentiles. Gentiles, to whom is the arm of the Lord revealed? If Israel will not believe our report, What's God doing? Isaiah is trying to say that God had in his mind from the foundation of the world a Gentile body, a Gentile bride for the Lord Jesus. And the Gentiles have believed his report. And the arm of God has long been extended to the Gentile people. And we are part of that group. And I'm so proud that he extended salvation to we aliens from the commonwealth of Israel and the Gentiles of Michigan in verse number two. Then he talks about how much he loves Israel Uh, No longer shall the land be termed desolate, but thou shalt be called Hephzibah. I remember I ran into a Baptist church in your state called Hephzibah. When I saw that name on the sign, I couldn't pronounce it. Then I learned that it was a Bible name, and I find it here uh, in verse number 4 in this chapter, Hephzibah. And uh, in the land of Beulah, all of us know that. If you look at the Sennacherian reference, you'll recognize the land of Beulah to mean uh, married, and uh, uh, married to the eternal uh, bridegroom. The term shall not be called desolate. The Israelites shall not be left desolate. I have set a watchman upon thy wall. And I think God has set watchmen upon the wall in our day. Every one of you Gentile believers in this old-fashioned book are watchmen on the wall, watching for the people, leading the people, and lifting the standard for the people. And i set my watchman upon the wall, O Israel, uh, which shall never hold their peace. God forbid we ever hold our peace. We have such a message to tell, such great doctrines to establish, and such a great ministry to perform. God forbid we hold our peace. We must declare the whole counsel of the Lord. And on and on in this uh, tremendous chapter. But I move down now. Uh, to the uh, to, to uh, verse number 10. In verse number 9, we have a promise that we're going to eat the fruit of the land and the fruit of the harvest, not only Israel, but Gentile believers as well. But they that have gathered it shall eat it and praise the Lord as they do. And they that have bought it uh, together shall drink it in the courts of my holiness. And that's a promise that God's going to uh, supply. God's going to let us reap and enjoy the bounty of this sojourn that we live in and the bounty of His work. Now the text in verse number 10, go through. And then He repeats it, go through the gates. That's a bit strange when I saw that first in the Bible. Go through, repeat it, go through the gates. And then second you have a semi, a colon, a semi colon and then the second clause, prepare ye the way of the people. That's part of the ministry. And then a third word, and this is double announced as well, cast up, cast up the highway. And then, that's a strange thing, isn't it? And then a semicolon and a fourth statement, gather out the stones out of the highway. And that's an important a word of exhortation. Number five, lift up a standard, not of the people, But you're to lift up a standard for the people. and a world of difference between the two. Sometimes it may be unpleasant to lift a standard for the people. But when you lift a standard for the people, uh, you don't take counsel with the world to determine what that standard is going to be. Nor do you take counsel with false religions and modernistic religion. But you lift up an old-fashioned book for the people as a standard, you see. Now, there are five tremendous things... In that verse that I feel that we ought to note and apply. Now let me read the next verse and then I'll give you those five things. Behold, the Lord hath proclaimed unto the end of the world. Say ye to the daughter of Zion, Behold, thy salvation cometh. Behold, his reward is with him and his work before him. And a great uh, text of scripture to follow as well. Now let's look at these verses and apply them to this great conclave here tonight. A born again, Bible believing, fundamental Baptist. I have never found it necessary to apologize that I'm a Baptist. And I've been a Baptist a long time, 65 years. And uh, I'm, I'm not ashamed that I'm a Baptist. I'm glad I am. And I tell, and by the way, with oh, a capital B. Right. And you're to read the same thing. Uh, we, we have a notable message to tell and a great responsibility rests heavy upon our shoulder and your shoulder and my shoulder as we live for the Lord and serve God in these days now. Now, I note the double exhortation in the first clause of, of verse 10. Go through, go through, said Isaiah, the gates. Now, in the New Testament, when you find our Lord, say, Verily, then you perk your ear up and listen because something important is about to be said. But when Jesus says, verily, verily, then you double take note because what he's about to say is most important. Now here is a prophet saying to the people of Israel, go through, go through the gates. Now in our day, we would say go through the door." And there's only one door that we enter into, and that's the door of Jesus. He said, I am the door. By me, if any man enter in, he'll be saved. And we preach that door all of my life. For 52 years, I've been standing beside the highway, crying out to people, multitudes of people uh, in my pulpit and uh, in other meetings and over the radio, go through, go through the gate. And I point out, I clearly point out, lest some mistake me, I clearly point out who is the door and where is the door and how to find that door. Now we call that evangelism. All Baptist people are evangelical people. You couldn't say that about Episcopalians or Lutherans or Catholics. They are non-evangelical. But Baptist people have always been zealous to reach out to the souls of men, both about us and through our missionaries around the world. We believe in telling the story, and we give money. We give our children, give our sons and our daughters to be missionaries around the world. One great joy of my life is to be the pastor of 36 missionaries that are members of my church. Some of them are baptized, and I'm so proud and happy about that. I believe in that. We cry out, go through, go through the door. Sometimes people hear me. Sometimes people will stop and they come over to me and say, say that again to me. Tell me what you mean by that. And I can lead them to a knowledge of Jesus and they go through that door and find the gift of eternal and everlasting life. The door that our Lord is. All of you are occupied in that. I believe in evangelism. I'm not an evangelist. I have never been an evangelist. I do the work of an evangelist. I our pastor, our pastor Dr. Green 25 years of his life. I conducted his funeral, I passed his brother Jack, also a full-time evangelist, I passed to Billy Kelly and uh, Warren Perkins, several other full-time evangelists at Tabernacle, though I've never been an evangelist, but I believe in evangelism, I believe in reaching out to the souls of people, and you believe in that, and that's why you're here, that's why you pastor your church, and you've done a great thing, and a noble thing when you give yourself yourself to evangelism. One of the finest personal uh, evangelists I know of is Dr. Robinson right here on this platform. God bless Brother Bobby. What a soul winner. What an evangelist he is. He preaches with tears and compassion. And people in the community know that he's filled up with compassion and love and they respect him. And He's won many, many, many people in this area to the Savior. We all want to do that. We're engaged in that. And God grant, we shall always be. But you know, evangelism is not the whole thing. And I think many pastors fail right at that point. You have the idea that if I can get somebody through the door, then I can go home and twiddle my thumbs. I've done a good day's work and my job is over. Oh, my soul. When they go through that door, your labor only then begins. Then you labor all your time. Uh, doing things that follow an experience of the grace of God. Every Baptist preacher will die with a thousand unfulfilled dreams. Your work's never finished. You labor every day and get up the next day and do the same thing. Laboring in the field, not altogether in evangelism, but that's part of it, and a great part of it, no doubt. But not all. If you have the idea that that's it, uh, then something is wrong. I don't put much stock. In these large number of baptisms, I take it with a grain of salt. I just don't put any stock in it. I was invited to preach at a mission conference in a church, and the pastor told me he had so many hundred people baptized a year before, up and above a thousand. And I wondered about that. I you, nobody in South Carolina has ever done that, and I've been preaching a long time. I've never done that. No other church in South Carolina has ever done that. And I wondered about it. This is another state. And I wondered about it. And I preached on Monday night to about 300 people. And I said to myself, well, tomorrow night we'll have a much larger crowd than this. Surely tomorrow night, Tuesday night, about the same crowd, 300 maybe. And I wondered where those thousands were. Now, we at Tabernacle count no noses except wet noses. If you can't get them in the baptistry, I wouldn't crow about it. That's nothing to talk about or brag about. To make a profession and leave them lost uh, to the world and to the temptation of the world outside the fellowship of a church is nothing to brag about. It might be wise if you counted wet noses, too. Now, we do count those who we can baptize, but otherwise, no, we don't count those. A person in the tabernacle is not a member until he goes into the baptistry with the preacher. He may join the church as a candidate, but his name is not put on the book until he goes into that baptistry with me, you see. And so, evangelism, a vital part, but not the whole picture. And I say that to you cautiously and as an older man, and you couldn't deny it. You couldn't deny it. No. I've been at one poop in 40 years, and we don't do that. We don't do that. Nearly 4,000 members, but we haven't done that. And don't plan to start that. We uh, give an invitation every time we preach, baptize everybody that we can to make of faith, uh, but uh, not like that. Uh, that's unhealthy, and I would not recommend that at all. Uh, but go through the door, we tell that. We urge people, go through, go through. We give double emphasis, go through the door. Now, having said that, look at the second thing Isaiah says in that verse. He says, uh, uh, prepare ye the way of the people. Prepare ye the way of the people. And that's where pastoral labor really begins to set in. Preparing the way for those that are coming behind us, you see. Those that are following us to that door. I'm to prepare the way to make it as easy for them and as sure for them and as certain as I can. Prepare ye the way of the people. Now I want to give you a little story, a little history about our people in North Carolina. I'm a native born South Carolinian born in St. George near Charleston, South Carolina, uh, May the 15th, 1914. And so what I'm talking about, I'm talking as a native citizen of the Carolinas. Uh, Whether you realize it or not, Baptist people in this area did not come across the waters into North Carolina, but came down from uh, Connecticut, Rhode Island, and Massachusetts, and Philadelphia, uh, through what we call the Philadelphia Trail, down through Virginia, and into North Carolina, into South Carolina, then into Georgia, and then later on across the Blue Ridge and the Smokies into the territory of Tennessee, then not even a state. What are you talking about, preacher? Uh, my people came to this country uh, through the port at Charleston from the old country from Germany in 1758. I have five granddaddies buried in South Carolina. And I can carry it to the degree of all five of them. I'm proud that I can do that. And they came here Baptists possibly because, uh, they came here possibly because of the Inquisition. And there are people in this auditorium now that doesn't understand what that is. Because it's been covered up in history books. It's been swept under the rug by Catholics. Uh, they instituted, the Catholic Church instituted the Inquisition in 1220 A.D. And it continued until 1806. Hadn't been many years ago when it was disbanded. In that period of time, literally millions of Baptists and Protestants and Jews died in Europe by the Inquisitors, and multitudes of Baptist people fled Germany, in particular, and some other countries as well, uh, to the Alps, the Piedmont uh, of the Alps mountain range, and then on oh, an opportunity to itself, they crossed America, crossed the ocean and came to America, as did my grandparents in 1758. And to escape uh, the cruelty of the Inquisition, uh, leveled against all Protestants and Baptists in particular, and also Jews, uh, in, the, in that period of time, 600 years, 1220-1808. Well, they came over here, and, and they, couldn't, they couldn't settle in Charleston because all that coastal area, was in the hand of a people. It was given to them by the King of England as a land grant back in the 1600s. Charleston was founded in 1630, and all the coast area, the Carolinas and Georgia, uh, were given to uh, British landowners, thousand acres plantations, and they raised tobacco and corn and cotton and shipped them back to England. Shipped it all back to England. The slave trade began. In that same period of time, and I would be at all surprised if tr- history could be discovered. I can't prove what I'm about to say, uh, say, but I'm strongly suspicious that the slave market was begun in America by the Episcopalian Church and the Catholic Church and the British people. One thing for sure, somebody did it, and when they did it, they made an awful era, terrible thing. Slavery could not be a- a justified. No way. No way. And yet my own people owned slaves back in that day. And, uh, and they bought them, no doubt, from slave merchants who capitalized. And by the way, in the Revelation prophecy, one of the commodities that the great harlot deals with is slaves. You read that in your Bible. And what I have just said, I can't prove, but I'm strongly suspicious of that. Be that as it may, the slaves are here. And they till the land for those wealthy British landowners. But when they came they brought their episcopalian church religion. And in South Carolina North Carolina and Virginia, the state church supported by tax money in the days of the colonies was the episcopalian church, Church of England. Now you need to know that. And they had an iron grip. They had an iron grip on all the coast areas of the colonies uh, back in the late 1500s and 1600s and even up to the Revolutionary War. When our country it was wrestle free from Great Britain. And they occupied all that area. And later on, a few Baptists came down uh, from the company you hear about in history, uh, the, uh, from Rhode Island, uh, Roger Williams, or they'll tell you about that. That's the English group of Baptists who were very sophisticated and dignified, like the Episcopalian people are till this day. One of those came to Charleston and founded the First Baptist Church of Charleston in 1684. And that church church was anemic then. Nearly died several times. And until this day, it's a smaller First Baptist Church. Never has done much. And in the early days of Baptist people in my state and this state, uh, the people in the other state where we live now despised that group in Charleston because they wore robes like Episcopalian people do. And they lived they drank their beer and paid their cards, just like Episcopalian people do, drank their liquor, uh, like Episcopalian people do, Catholic people do. And Baptists couldn't get along with the, upstate Baptists couldn't get along with that crowd. But they had an iron grip on that entire area. And the priest of the uh, Episcopalian church was in courts with the uh, deputies and with the sheriff of every county in in the days of the colonies. And that put a barrier against other Baptists coming into that area, and until this day, in the lower part of South Carolina, one of the strong denominations of the Epistopalian church, in Greenville it's weak, in Greenville it's weak, but down there, the Epistopalian church out in the country, the one room deals, you don't have anything like that in the mountains areas, where well, later Baptist people settled, you don't have that, We still have that until this day, both of our senators from South Carolina are Epistopalians, both of them, they're old state people, and all the heritage were Episcopalians. Now, where did you come from, the Baptists in this country? You couldn't come through that buffer zone because the Episcopalians saw to it. They had the sheriff on their side. They wouldn't allow you to come. But something happened in the providence of God. Have you ever heard of the great awakening in the early 1700s under Jonathan Edwards? Everybody heard of that, haven't you? Somehow God sparked a revival. I mean, something happened. I don't quite understand what happened. I wasn't here, of course, but I read a little bit about it in history. But something happened up there with Jonathan Edwards. And by the way, he had great revival in many, many converts, but he lost his pulpit. They kicked him out, brokenhearted, and died without a pulpit later. He had too much religion for the Episcopalian people. But he got a lot of people saved. And those folks could not conscientiously join the Episcopalian Church in Rhode Island and Massachusetts and uh, Connecticut. Nor could they join the Congregational Church. Because most of them were pedo-baptists and are yet. Pedo-baptists, theological terms, means infant baptizers. Baptists have always been anti-pedo-baptists. But I've lived a long time and passed a long time, but I've never Sprinkle water on a baby's head. You don't find that in the Bible. But Lutherans do it and Presbyterians do it and Methodists do it and uh, the Episcopalians do it and the Catholics started it. But it's not in the Bible. And so those converts of uh, Jonathan Edwards couldn't join a congregational church in Rhode Island and they couldn't join the Episcopalian church. Their conscience would not allow them. They became baptized converts. And became Baptist on their own. Without being encouraged by preachers. No, they became Baptist, And they multiplied. Won a lot of other people to God. It's gone down in history as a great awakening. Wouldn't it be good if we could have one. In the latter part of this 20th century. They had one then. And those folk became burdened. For the Indians in the south. Those Baptist folk. In the northeast. Came burdened. And they wanted to, to be missionaries to the Indians. And then they were dissatisfied not having freedom. And wherever there's a state church, there is no religious freedom. In your neighboring state of Virginia, read the life of John Leland. He was in prison many times in your neighboring state for preaching the gospel. Right. If we could call back some of the old founding fathers, they'd rise up against that. Because some of them stood on the side of John Leland. And uh, defended him. But he was in prison for preaching the gospel. And uh, those people. Our Baptist brethren. our Baptist, Your relatives. Not mine. Because mine came uh, from Europe. To the Charleston port. But your relatives. Uh, Baptist relatives. Made their way down the Philadelphia trail. From, uh, and Philadelphia was not. Did not have a state church. Pennsylvania had no state church. But Virginia did. North Carolina did. South Carolina did. And it was the Episcopalian church. I'm talking about before the revolution in the days of the colonies. And they made their way down to Philadelphia and then through Virginia and into North Carolina. And whether you folk in this building is not aware it or not, but you are seated within 35 or 40 miles of the first Baptist church in upstate North Carolina. Well, where is that, Preacher? East of where you now sit, in a little town named Liberty, just this side of Burlington, in Alamance County, there's a church named Sandy Creek that was founded in uh, 1755 by a man named Stuball Stearns, whose body is buried in that cemetery. And Stuball Stearns was a convert of Jonathan Edwards. And he, with his family, plus many other families, uh, like the western migration to California, migrated from North, northeast down to the Carolinas to find a new home and to be missionaries to the Indians. Uh, and they, they built churches. Deep Creek Baptist Church over at Burlington was one they started. Abbott Creek's Baptist Church over near Thomasville is one that Stuball Stern started in 1755, uh, but he died in 1771. Now that's a, that's a romantic story. My son and some of the folk of my church on the Greyhound made a trip up to Sandy Creek one day. And the old church building, uh, about 20 by 40, built in uh, 1802 is still standing there. And I stood in the pulpit, uh, just about five foot square pulpit. And I, I, I could imagine that little crowd of people, 20 or 25, uh, 100 maybe, in that building singing some of the songs that they had to write themselves. They had no song books. And they, they had a revival. They, 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 were, they were the fruit of revival. And they were Baptist. And they called themselves separatist. And that's exactly what the Southwide Baptist Fellowship is. It was started as a separate organization. I think some people have the idea that what this fellowship is, is a continuation of the old uh, Southern Baptist Premillennial Fellowship. No kin at all. I was on hand when this fellowship was started. No mention was made of the Southern Baptist Premier Fellowship. This was started as an independent Baptist fellowship. And it's still that until this day. And shall always be as far as I'm concerned. I am not an ecumenist. I'm not interested in joining the Southern Baptist. I was with them 12 years of the pastor. I've been an independent 40 years and I'll die an independent Baptist preacher. As amen, as May Jackson says, say amen there. We need some amens at that point. We've got too many people playing footsies with Southern Baptists. We don't need them. They spit on you or spit on me. And they have no love for you, not at all. Nor me. I love them, but I'm not interested in becoming part of them. Not at all. Stuball Stearns and his despised crowd started those churches. And at one time, Sandy Creek Baptist Church had 600 members out in the woods between here and Burlington, North Carolina. Think of that, 600 members out in the country. And he built 17 other churches in his lifetime until he died in 1771. Now, that didn't sit well with the priest down in Wilmington or the priest up at Newman. Not at all. In fact, the governor in Newburn said, I'm going to build myself a new mansion. And he began to call for taxes from what he called the upstate. And when he sent his men up to collect taxes in the upstate, those Baptist fathers back in the middle of 1700s said, no taxation without representation. You ever heard of that? Baptist people started that. The state of North Carolina was ruled by the Episcopalian priest and the King of England. And they said, we'll pay no taxes. We have nothing to do with the government. We'll pay no taxes. And they didn't. And that didn't sit well with the governor, he, uh, with the governor. He got his militia and actually started a war called the Battle of Alamance. How many of you have ever heard of the Battle of Alamance? Well, many of you folks have been certainly a little bit history. Not far from here. And that militia took on those Baptist separatists who called themselves regulators. And there was a pitched battle, a shooting battle. Many of them died. And the governor, Tryon, hanged seven preachers without a trial right there on the battleground. Now that's in the background of your people. If you study your family tree, you'll find out that your people came from Massachusetts and Connecticut and Rhode Island back in the 1700s. Sure as sure you live. Now when Stu Ball Stern saw that, he and his company had to pack up and leave again. And they left Alamance County and traveled just about where we now are, across the Blue Ridge. And they settled in Watauga, Carter County of Tennessee. They thought they were still in North Carolina, but they found out they were in, the, in the, the Tennessee territory. Then Tennessee was not a state. We're talking about 1755, uh, 60 in that a period. Thousands, we're not talking about a dozen people, but hundreds and thousands migrated from the north as a result of that great religious awakening. And then when the persecution came because of the Catholic, I mean, the Pittsburgh opposition, they migrated hundreds and hundreds of them to the mountains and into Tennessee. And the first Baptist church built in the state of Tennessee is Buffalo Ridge near Johnson City. And one of the early churches in Tennessee was Sinking Creek at Johnson City, and I preached in that church in 1950. All the Baptist people in Tennessee came from this area, all the Baptist people. And guess who was in that crowd? Daniel Boone, whose father was a Baptist preacher. That's something to think about. And uh, Crockett, who was uh, a Baptist, and many others like him. And Sam Houston, the great governor of Texas, was first uh, a pioneer across the mountains from this country. Uh, Sam Houston's dad was a Baptist preacher of the same crowd I'm talking about, who had to leave this state under religious persecution and cross the mountain and build another a settlement for themselves in Carter County of Tennessee. Now that's something right here in this country 200 years ago. Religious persecution at the hand of the Episcopalian Church and the powers to be of the Church of England. I want no part of that. Now, I'd like to stand up and say to Stu Stearns, I too am a separatist. I'm a Baptist. Don't you ever be ashamed of that? And you folk in Tennessee, the Tennessee folk here tonight, I want you to know that's where your roots are. Daniel Boone's mom and daddy are buried down here at Knoxville. He lived in this area. The Yadkin River was a favorite pioneer land for Daniel Boone because he later uh, explored Kentucky, then he crossed over the Mississippi toward the west and died in Missouri. body brought back to Kentucky and buried. What a heritage you have. Tennessee has a great, rich Baptist heritage. I, I marvel at it. Some of the finest people I've ever known are native Tennesseans. And I know before they were Tennesseans, their family were North Carolinians of the Stewball Stearns Stern clan. Now that's great heritage, you need to know. Now, what I told you that story to tell you that those men prepared the way of the people. They knew that many others were coming down from the north. They wanted none of them to compromise. They wanted all of them to be separated Baptists. They wanted all of them to be fundamental Bible-leaving Baptists. And they prepared the way of the people. Now, here we are, 1991, still doing the same thing. God have mercy on a Baptist preacher That won't preach the whole counsel of God. In his full bed. If you're that kind. I don't want to shake hands with you. What do Baptists believe about this book? That we're to be ashamed of nothing. Nothing. This is God's word. and We would die before we'd compromise it. Right. Prepare ye the way of the people. Now I have a family. My son. He has five children, a wonderful wife, my daughter. God bless her, two fine sons, one of them a preacher, and a great grandchild. To say nothing of, of the children of all those members of Tabernacle, I'm their pastor. I'd be better dead, I'd be better off dead than not to prepare the way for the people that follow me. Now I'm nearly there, brother. I, it won't be long till I'll be over there. Somebody said, I'll catch you, preacher. In your age, I said, when you catch me, I'll be gone. But I'm ready to go. But I want my family to know exactly the path I walked. Exactly what I believe. Exactly where I stood. I want my children to know that I'm a Baptist. I want them to know that I'm a fundamentalist. If that's a bad word, I plead guilty. And I didn't start being one I've been preaching 52 years and I'm still a fundamentalist. Prepare the way of the people, said Isaiah. Then there's a third thing look at it. It says, uh, Cast up, cast up the highway. There's your double word of exhortation again. Cast up that Philadelphia trail that I mentioned. Uh, my son believes, and I believe possibly, it could be U.S. Highway number one. Wouldn't be at all surprised. Could Going right down out of New York through uh, Washington and Philadelphia, right on down to Raleigh, right on to Columbia, to Augusta, right on down to Florida. U.S. number one. I've traveled it many times in my life. But in the old days of the colonies, there was a trail, a merchant's trail, pioneer trail, Stuball Stearns and his company of hundreds of Baptists travel. That trail wasn't much of a highway you can imagine. Uh, I can remember South Carolina when many roads were not paved. But back in those days, a highway was unknown. Many of those trails were Indian trails that they had used, that the pioneer fathers used right here in the Carolinas. Don't you know when the storms came and the wind blew and the rain came down in torrents, the roads washed out, And here's a pioneer group coming down that road, and he sees the road washed out. He doesn't detour and go around it because he's got some kids coming behind him. He has some relatives coming behind him, and I want to help them. So he stops his caravan, and they say, let's cast up. Let's cast up the road. And as I journey in the way, I see a dirty liberal. He's a stone in the road. He's thrice in the road. And i stop and cast him out of the way. <laughs> and you better do the same thing. Cast up. Cast up the whole highway. Make it uh, uh, acceptable for your own family and others that are following you. And there are times when a pastor has to cast up. Cast up the road. Fix up the road. If there's a gully, fill it up. If there's a crooked place that's dangerous, straighten it out. If trees fall across the trail, move the trees. That's what I'm to do. As a pastor, I've been doing that all these years. Casting up the road, casting up the road, doing my best to make it easy for those that follow later. But there's a fourth word in my take. It says gather out the stones. Now you have to do that over in the Smoky Mountains now in these super highways. Stones fall off the hill and down on the road. And periodically, the highway has to put men in there to move those stones out of the way. God puts you in the pulpit to move stones out of the highway. Clean the stones out. Get all the stones out of the way. You run over a stone in the highway, you wreck yourself. If your child runs over, it may be fatal. You better clear that highway. You better watch out for these men. that creep in unawares. And they talk great sweating words, but they don't believe the Bible. Now, my dear soul, if a man doesn't believe this book, all things being equal, if a man doesn't believe this book, what fellowship can we have with him? None. In fact, I'm forbidden in the second epistle of John to even pray for that kind of a man, lest I become partaker of his evil deeds. So cast out the stones, move the stones out right of the way. And then there's a fifth thing. He said, uh, lift up a standard, not of the people. If Brother Bobby Robinson went to the people and said, now let's make a standard, there'd be some who'd say, well, it's all right to smoke cigarettes. It's all right to wear shorts. It's all right to go to the Hollywood movies. And uh, all right, women wear pants suits to church. At Tabernacle, the ladies don't wear pants suits to church. And if you've got women, wear a suit to your church for service, you need to move some stones out of the way and do some straightening out. Say, I don't like you. Well, I won't be around long. Don't worry about that. You won't put up me very long. But my text says lift up a standard for the people, for the people. I think I'm in a better condition to make a standard for the people than the people are I don't think I'm more intelligent than they but I've lived longer than they have and I think I'm in a better position to lift the right kind of standard and in fact the text tells me to lift up a standard for them and some people don't whine say I don't like that what was in the book you lift the best standard in a way just lift it up just lift it up young preacher came to me the other day and with this I'll let you go he said preacher aren't you discouraged and I said no he said, Do you know that you're in a minority? And he was a young fellow, a novice, fine young fellow, student at Bible College, just fine as he can be. I love him. Got a good spirit about him. My son teaches him. He teaches in the Bible College on Monday, Tuesday, not only me. I teach Monday, Tuesday, not also. And, uh, and and Jimmy agrees. He's a fine boy. But he said, uh, Aren't you discouraged? You're in a minority. Somebody's been talking to him. Somebody in Greenville got that boy aside and say, "That crowd, Tabernacle, they—they're narrow, they're narrow people. They're fanatics. They believe the Bible, and they—they uh, they don't go to the Hollywood movies, and they don't—they don't, they don't believe in playing bingo. That's a narrow crowd. And uh, that, that preacher, uh, he's got some wild ideas. They've been getting to that boy, I'm pretty sure. And I said, "Son, no, I'm not discouraged." Always, God's people have been in the minority. Paul was, and Elijah that he preached about a while ago was. I'm to expect no better treatment for the world is concerned. If God be for you, might as not, who may be against it? You lift up that standard. You lift up that standard. God, in my text, says, lift up a standard for the people. And you do that. And your life is not only involved in crying out to people, uh, come through, go through, do that. But once you get them evangelized, then spend the rest of your life trying to help them build a Christian life and be the Christian they ought to be for others that are coming on. Do it because it's right to do it. Thank you for listening to the Classic Sermons podcast from PreachTheBible.org a ministry of North Valley Baptist Church in Santa Clara, California. To listen to many more powerful sermons, visit our website, PreachTheBible.org. If you enjoy Christian music and programming, visit KNVBC.com for Christian music you can trust.